Hello, my awesome project managers, fellow professionals in the world of project management. It's a pleasure to be with you today talking about the PMBOK Guide 7th edition. But before we get started, I'd like to rewind 20 plus years ago. I was in my friend's house in Tempe, Arizona, turned on the TV, and I was about making a flight back to the United Kingdom. And my friend said, look, you're not going anywhere. See what's on the TV. And lo and behold, the site that has been known around the world, a site of terror. I'd like to take a few seconds, a few moments here to remember those who perished on that day. They may be gone, but they're not forgotten. That day had a very huge impact on many of us. Some of us had loved ones, friends that were in that event. And I'll never forget, I was grounded in the United States for a couple of weeks and um, finally was able to fly back to London. Uh, incidentally, I'm in London now and that's where I'm bringing this to you from. So. Let's get moving into the world of project management. The world has changed quite drastically since that happened. We're now more risk aware. You know, risk is one of the topics we talk about in this world of project management. We talk about risk. We talk about stakeholders. Now we're a lot more aware of things that we took for granted back in the year 2001, right? We're now more aware of a number of topics, mental health, and the interesting thing is that all of these come together in project management. What the PMI has done in the PMBOK Guide 7th edition is bring together a smattering of topics that cut across the world of predictive, the world of agile, and the world of hybrid. And that's what I want to touch on really quickly today. I just want to take you through very rapidly PMI's perspective in the PMBOK Guide 7th edition. Now, the PMBOK Guide 7th edition is not a replacement for the PMBOK Guide 6th edition. It is an addendum, if you will. It is a, if you want to call it an annex. So it builds on what the PMBOK 6 uh, left at the ground level and it elevates it to some degree. And that's uh, what we're going to take a look at today. Today, I'm going to show you very quickly, for those of you who need to get off the call, I'm going to show you the 12 principles of project management. I'm also going to show you the eight domains just to get you clued into what PMI is talking about. And then when we get done with that, we'll move into some more PMP, CAPM specific topics. Okay. All right. Well, let's jump straight into what chapter one has in store. This is going to go very quick. If you want to go deeper into the world of PMBOK 7, you can go on down to tinyurl.com forward slash PMBOK 7 PMP, and you'll be able to get a 12-hour course, very affordable on Udemy. And my buddy Roy and I, we go through the PMBOK 7 
from an agile lens, a hybrid lens, a predictive lens, going a lot deeper than what I'll be doing here in the next one hour. So chapter one in the Pembroke Guide 7th edition is more or less an introduction to project management. In the seventh edition, as opposed to just calling project management the application of knowledge, skills, tools, and techniques to project activities to deliver a deliverable, we go a step further in PMBOK 7, and we talk about outcomes. We talk about value a whole lot more, see? So you could say a project is a unique undertaking with a defined beginning and an end. It's aimed at achieving specific objectives, within constraints like time, scope, budget, and so on, you know, like planning a wedding. But we go a step further in the seventh edition and we ask, what outcome are we looking for? Well, the outcome could be one of great memories, joy, happiness, an experience that is mind-blowing, that's unforgettable. So it's not just about delivering a deliverable, it's about an ultimate outcome. Project management, as I said in the very beginning, is, is very important because it's the confluence of many things, schedule, cost, scope. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply of quality, resources, communications, risk, procurement, stakeholder, and then more. We could keep building on it. We could also bring in the topic of leadership and, and so on and so forth. But project management is done at different levels. In the world of Agile, the team does it, you know, predominantly in the world. And when I say the team, I mean everyone on the team, you know, whether you're in the world of Kanban or in the world of Scrum or in the world of Predictive, right? Team is team. It's everyone. And um, project management is essential. You know, I, I often laugh at, at companies who say, we don't need project management. <laughs> yes, you do. You, you just manage it yourself, right? Everyone needs project management. We take an overview of the PMBOK Guide 7th edition. We could say it's a comprehensive framework. It integrates agile and predictive approaches in many ways. Um, it covers principles, domains, and competencies for project managers and the guide offers and uh, you could call it a guide on adopting an agnostic perspective. So we have the predictive perspective, you plan everything up front, we have the agile perspective, where you're open a lot more to changes, uh, changes to be expected, uh, feedback, adapting quickly to revisions, and things such as that. Um, an example on the screen here, changing the color theme or adding a new element to a reception, for example, can be accommodated using Agile principles, right? A lot more because Agile, it spans even beyond what you would say is, there's a deliverable and it's etched in stone never to change. Now, Agile looks more at the adaptability of whatever it is. So from chapter one, you'll realize that projects are temporary. Uh, project management ensures effective execution of tasks and resources. And like I said, anyone could do that. PMBOK Guide 7th Edition integrates both predictive and agile in a way that previous editions hadn't. And real-world projects often benefit from a blend of predictive and agile approaches. When we talk about predictive, this is my analogy. 
you're going from point A to point B, it's in a straight line, right? If you're in the world of predictive. In the world of agile, we do things called iterations or sprints. And you could think of these as a series of mini experiments where you're building on the previous output or the previous effort. And eventually you will get to where you're going, but it's in a number of steps because in the very beginning, you weren't entirely sure in many instances of where B was. You know there's a point B, but you don't know where point B is. Agile will be a great way uh, of you embarking on such a project. And then we have the concept of hybridization. And hybridization just means you're taking agile approaches, predictive approaches, you are sandwiching them together, or you're doing them in different parts of the project along the timeline. That's really what that's all about. All right, moving on in the Agile Practice Guide, which is a different publication from the PMI, but nonetheless a rather important one uh, because it helps bridge uh, the worlds together and helps you understand uh, the differences between um, iterative, predictive, incremental, and agile. Uh, that's what I'm showing on the screen uh, right now, just to give some context for those who are new to all of this, uh, to show the nuances in the world of the PMI between the agile, the predictive, iterative, and incremental. So let me go over those really quickly. So in the world of predictive, we have a one-time delivery. It's a single delivery. In the world of iterative, we have a single delivery as well. It usually surprises people that iterative is a single delivery, but it is. It's a single delivery at the end of several iterations or several steps. You see, you could have many iterations. You repeat until correct, but you're only going to deliver one time. In the world of incremental, we have frequent smaller deliveries, but the activities are one time per iteration. In the world of Agile, this is where we bring iterative and incremental approaches together, and we have frequent small deliveries. We are repeating till correct, and we are delivering multiple times. So that's kind of the explanation of all of the approaches talked about in the 7th edition. To give a, a better understanding of project management at a high level, you could say project management, while being the application of knowledge and skills and tools and techniques to project activities, to get a desired outcome, to experience the value, which is the net quantifiable benefits. But in order to do that, we have a way we chunk what we're doing in project management, the authorization and the initial um, expansion of the customer request is called initiating. This is where we derive a project charter and we understand our stakeholders, who they are, and we get a stakeholder register. Then we have planning where we develop a robust project management plan. And then we have executing where we are carrying out the plan. We have monitoring and controlling where we're checking the plan to make sure it's going as we planned. And we have closing where we close out either a phase in the project or the project as a whole. So again, we get a project charter, we get a project management plan, we get work done, we get reports, and then we close out either phase or the project. 
as a whole. And that's really what all this is about, right? Initiating is the authorization. Planning is planning all the aspects that need to be planned. Executing is doing the work as planned. Monitoring and controlling is ensuring the work is going according to plan by generating reports, checking those reports and sharing those reports. And closing is transitioning the deliverable to the customer or getting to a point where we call, uh, we call it a phase gate, a phase exit, a phase end review. We also call it a kill point. And uh, there's so many other terminologies that we can uh, use for, for uh, the, these points on, on the project. All right, let's move on to our next slide. So over here, this is where I break down project management into more final detail. Um, we could break project management down into what we call areas of knowledge. This is talked about in PMBOK 6. So this is just giving you a better idea of uh, the nuts and bolts of project management before we dive fully into the seventh. So bringing all the pieces of project management together is called integration. And it's a knowledge area. We call it a knowledge area. We have scope management, understanding all that needs to be done, schedule management, which is managing the timeline of the project, cost management, managing the budget, quality management, determining fitness for use. What is that? What, what do we mean when we say a service or a result is fit for use? What do we mean when we say it should conform to requirements? What do we mean when we say it should satisfy the customer? We expand on all of that, and that's quality. So quality, in my mind, is, is four things. It's fitness for use, conformance to requirements, customer satisfaction, and Kaizen. It's continuous improvement. Then we talk about resource management, human, equipment, material, supplies, and facilities. We talk about communications, which everyone knows. I'm sure you've communicated today already. If you're on this call, I am communicating with you, right? I'm sharing an idea. I'm encoding my ideas and I'm passing them across to you through a medium, through this medium of, of the web, right? And then we have procurements, which is all about buying what you need from outside the firm. If you decide to procure services or goods to help your project, that's procurement. We have stakeholder management. A stakeholder is an individual or an entity that could be affected by the project or could affect the project or thinks they could be affected by the project. And last but not least, in the middle, I have the bullseye, which is risk. And all of these knowledge areas, we could have risks surrounding each one of these areas. We could have scope risk. We could have schedule risk. You know, an, an example of a risk, what is a risk? A risk is an uncertain event that if it happens, could impact the project positively or negatively. So we have risks surrounding scope. You could have a risk that you didn't effectively scope out the project. So the project is done and it doesn't satisfy the customer. Double risk. you got a stakeholder satisfaction risk and then you got a scope risk. You could have risks that your schedule was not effectively built. So you have a lot of missing links between your tasks. You have a lot of missing dependencies and, and sometimes you even have altogether missing tasks. So you could have risk. That's just an example. You could have risk touching all of these. And that's why this is important. But going a step further, the last layer at the bottom is what we're going into today. And that is the 12 principles of 
project management. And this is talked about in the PMBOK guide, 7th edition. It's fresh, it's new, uh, it hasn't been in any uh, previous PMBOK guide. So we'll be going quite squarely into that. Um, I have some questions here that I'm going to skip because I really want to get to the principles. So let's go to the first principle. It says, be a diligent, respectful, and caring steward. So what does that mean? What does it mean to be a steward? A steward is a custodian, a caretaker. Another word for steward, you could say servant leader. A steward is a servant leader. But looking under the hood, stewardship entails responsibility, managing resources, stakeholders, objectives, building trust, fostering a positive environment. When you look under the hood, if you're going to translate this into the world of agile, it just means be a great servant leader. Be a great servant leader because you could have a servant leader in any capacity on the team, could be a developer, could be a product owner, if you wanted to call it that, could be a scrum master, could be a project manager, could be anyone, right? So the mindset is I should be responsible with the resources that have been entrusted to me. I should viciously protect and guard them. I should treat them as though they were mine. And I should also be aware of compliance and regulatory stuff. And that is one of the things PMI talks about in, in stewardship. There's a lot of importance when it comes to being diligent, not cutting corners, having respect for the resources entrusted to you and care. Right? Those are three of the things talked about on this slide, but these somewhat echo what we have heard in the world of Agile, doesn't it? Managing team well-being, you know, we talk about the scrum master carrying food and water. It's very similar. A lot of people find it strange when I say carry food and water. They think it's a joke. It's not a joke. I mean, you've got a development team slugging it out, pounding away at all that code or whatever they're developing, be it a technical document, be it a product, whatever the case. But the servant leader needs to have that mindset of stewardship to be able to serve those on the team. That's really what this is about. And then going a step further, the servant leader, the, the steward, understands the importance of not only governance, but regulatory issues and ensuring that you adhere to those. All right. So in the world of predictive, we typically say plan the timeline, allocate resources, track progress. In the world of agile, create a flexible plan. And there are many ways to do that. I don't want to get prescriptive because I know I have the Kanban zealots and I have the scrum zealots and I, you know, I have the predict, <laughs> I have the predict. So I don't want to go, I don't want to prescribe anything in either world, but regardless of the world you're in, you got to make sure you tailor the plan to fit what's going on, right? Whether it's daily standups. I know some people hate daily standups. If that is what suits the project, do it and get on with it. It's not about you. See, the servant leader understands it's not about what I want. It's about what the team sees fit. All right. Ensure the team's well-being while achieving the project objectives is one of the things that the servant leader should do. So the main takeaways are stewardship involves responsible management, stakeholder engagement, being diligent, being respectful, being a caring steward, caring for the team, carrying food and water, serving the team. All right, here's the summary. So we have integrity, care, trustworthiness, and commitment. 
Let's go into the next principle. Next principle just says create a collaborative project team environment. So how do you do that? Think about it. If you are a servant leader, you should ask the question, how can I create a collaborative project team environment? Number one, in my mind, you got to have a team charter that was worked on by the team, not you alone. You know, some some folks, they want to they want to try the Moses trick. They want to come from the mountain with the scrolls and say, thou shalt do this. No, 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 that's not going to work. Get the team together and work on it together. Work on a team charter. So team charter, team contract, social contract, team agreement, all alternate terms that we use for these things. But uh, my advice to you would be to work with a team. See, don't, uh, don't do this in isolation. Okay, work with the team. The sun's come out and <laughs> it's shining so much on my face. It looks like I'm some sort of Casper. No, no, no. Uh, I'll try and tone that down in a few moments. But um, thank you, those of you who are here. Thank you for coming. Thank you, Lawan. Good to see you. Lawan is one of my PMP gurus who got certified this year and has been helping other people get certified. Good to see you, Lawan and everyone else on the call, good to see you. All right, so let's move on. Let's move on to 3.2 in a little bit more detail. Beyond having a project charter, my recommendation is to really make it transparent and make it as collaborative as possible by making sure everyone has a voice, making sure everyone is heard, right? Um, foster transparent communication and just use some effective decision-making approaches. You know, one of the things that happens in a lot of teams when it comes to decision-making is we still have we still have the one person who thinks, oh, I'm meant to make the decision. And that's probably not the best way to do it. I think the best way to do it is to use uh, the approach of consensus and to decide, okay, what does consensus look like for us? Uh, in this team, uh, you could say more than 50% must agree, maybe 60, maybe 70, but definitely not dictatorship. That's not the best. Uh, Cross-functional agile teams benefit from collaboration for enhanced product functionality. There are many tools and techniques for effective collaboration. And uh, speaking of uh, effective tools and techniques, the number of people in their organizations, they still don't believe in turning on the camera. I just turned mine on, <laughs> just turned mine on for emphasis. You should, in my mind, if, you, if you're meeting um, as much as possible, the reason is it just helps to be more transparent and more present, you know, like imagine I'm speaking to you here and I'm staring outside, outside the window, you see there's a whole lot of sun but I could be staring outside the window and be totally distracted. And you wouldn't know if my camera was off. But with my camera on, you can see that I am present and I am, um, I am concentrating on whatever is being done. So I would advocate for teams that are geographically dispersed. You might just wanna up the ante and say, okay, we're going pedal to metal. This is gonna be one of our, our team charter aspirations to keep the camera on. It just elevates things. 
you know, the great Professor Emeritus Albert Moravian is in his work, you know, which, by the way, is not a one size fits all. It's not all communication. But when you're communicating high stakes messages, highly sensitive messages, the communication is just amplified by the body language. The body language trumps everything else. So you have 55, 38, 7, you know. So for, for collaboration, in my mind, if a team is not in the same place, co-located, my aspiration would be to have some sort of video conferencing going on. All right, let's move on. Leveraging collaboration tools and predictive use collaboration tools for task allocation and progress monitoring in the world of Agile. Use Kanban boards for transparency and continuous communication. Um, all of the events that we typically carry out in the world of Agile, it just gets us further ahead when it comes to collaboration more swiftly and efficiently in my mind. Like, why would I meet for two hours a week when I could just meet 15 minutes a day and then even limit the the, the the risks, minimize the risk of being misaligned. You know what I mean? So uh, these are some of the things we use in predictive and in agile. Main takeaways for 3.2 here, collaboration is essential. And without it, a project could, could end up going to the dogs, could end up failing. Um, so I, I highly encourage team collaboration, uh, transparency, use, if you're co-located, use the concept of caves and commons. Uh, there's times that you may want to retreat into your cave, but then have a common area where the team can interact and get a lot more done. 3.3, effectively engage with stakeholders. How do you effectively engage with stakeholders? Well, there has to be a number of things. Let's skip this. There has to be a number of things. Uh, there has to be engagement in a medium that the stakeholder prefers. You know, if your stakeholder prefers live engagement, being there, you got to be there. You know, I remember back in the day when I started speaking to companies, a lot of the companies actually wanted a meeting before the meeting. And the reason for that is different stakeholders have their own preferences, and a lot of stakeholders. They understand the power face-to-face. -face. They just get a lot more assurance. So there were times I would travel out to meet with clients before the engagement, before the talk, you know, before the workshop. And it was just because they wanted that type of engagement. So you got to understand your stakeholders. You know, I, I hear a lot of PMs complaining, oh, I have to travel again because my customer just likes face. It's, it's what the customer wants face-to-face. That's what the customer wants. You got to give it to them, right? Stakeholders play a crucial role in the success or failure of a project. So you got to engage stakeholders in the best way possible and promote a collaborative project environment by engaging your stakeholders the right way. So what do we mean by engagement? Stakeholder engagement is working with a stakeholder and communicating what is near and dear to the stakeholder's heart. That's how you get them engaged. There are many examples of engagement. In this one, it's an infrastructure project to build a new highway. Well, you're going to have a lot of stakeholders, local residents, of course, business, environmental groups. Have you ever seen something being built near you and immediately you raise a red flag of concern? You are a stakeholder right there. So each group has unique concerns and needs. And a good project manager understands the different archetypes of stakeholders, whether you're in the world of predictive or in the world of agile. 
and the world of predictive project managers conduct public forums and surveys to gather input. They develop a communication plan to keep stakeholders like you informed. They're building right next to you. Well, they've got a campaign to update you and let you know this is not a threat. This is actually going to help the community and so on. In the world of Agile, we have feedback mechanisms that are established for continuous stakeholder input. We have our sprint reviews. You know, we have other forums and interactions where um, if it's been done the right way, stakeholders and end users should be rest assured that you understand their user stories or their requirements in cases where they're not able to write those and their requirements. So regular meetings, regular touch points, you know, regular updates, it just helps a stakeholder ensure that uh, they're on the same page with you. So we have uh, influence projects, stakeholders influence projects, uh, teams serve stakeholders engagement. You got to remember that it's not just uh, you, the project manager, it's also about the team uh, working with the stakeholders to ensure that they engage at the right level. In the world of Agile, we, we do less policing. In fact, we don't do all that policing that we do in the world of predictive. In the world of predictive, I've been on some projects where the, the stakeholders are banned from speaking to the developers, but that's not how it is in the world of Agile. You know, it's less controlled. Um, so engagement enhances value, uh, perceived value and actual value of what the stakeholders are getting. Let's move on to principle four, focus on value. What is value? Value in the world of the Project Management Institute has been described as the net quantifiable benefits that a stakeholder derives from a product, service, or result or the project. And um, when it comes to, to value, it should be in the forefront. In, in actual fact, in the world of Agile, we often say if it's not value, you shouldn't be doing it. This is the job of the product owner in the world of Agile to sift through the various requests and to either refuse them, put them on the back burner, um, deprioritize them, and those that are of higher value, they get bumped up. Uh, so it is very important in uh, the world of project management to focus on doing the right stuff and to deliver value as early as possible. So price is what you pay, value is what you get, said the great Warren Buffett. So we want the value to be as much as or even more, right? We want to deliver even more than what the price is. And, and that's that helps customers' perception of the value that they got. Focusing on value means understanding what truly matters to stakeholders and delivering outcomes that align with their needs. And not just delivering them, but delivering them as early as possible. Project managers must define and measure value in terms of benefits, return on investment, and impact on organizational objectives. Consider a predictive project to develop a new software tool for a marketing team. The project manager's role is to ensure that the tool enhances the team's efficiency in analyzing market campaigns, resulting in improved decision making. So I want to make sure that whatever we do offers value, right? Another example here, the project manager engages with stakeholders to understand their pain points and objectives by identifying the challenges the software tool should address and the benefits it should provide. The manager defines the value proposition. 
After implementing the software tool, the project manager measures its value by assessing how much time and effort the marketing team saves in campaign analysis. By quantifying the efficiency gains, the manager demonstrates the project's tangible impact. It is important that we ensure projects, all of activities align with value delivery. Great Steve Jobs says, innovation is the ability to see change as an opportunity, not a threat. But needless change should be avoided, right? We have Kaizen, we have Kayaku, which is needless change. We don't want to do the needless change. We want to do the Kaizen, change for the better, right? So as we're working the project, the question should be, is this truly delivering value? Project managers must ensure that tasks, processes, and decisions align with the overall value proposition to maximize the positive impact of the project outcomes. Let's explore an agile project aiming to develop a new e-commerce platform for a retail company. The project manager's responsibility is to ensure that each feature developed directly enhances the user experience and drives sales growth. The project manager collaborates with the development team to prioritize features based on user feedback and business impact. So the agile police, I know they're out there. So <laughs> I know some agile police folks are saying, hey, that's the job of the product owner. We're just talking in very general terms here. You need to understand that the Pembok Guide 7th edition uh, is not trying to place things uh, strictly on the product owner or strictly on the scrum master. It's very agnostic, and um, I want you to, to, to understand that this is not um, a, a Scrum or, or Kanban class. So this is, is pretty general. All right. After the platform's launch, the project manager measures value impact by analyzing user engagement metrics, conversion rates, and revenue generated through the new features. This approach validates the alignment of project activities with value delivery. The key takeaways, focusing on value means understanding stakeholder needs and aligning outcomes with benefits. Both predictive and agile projects benefit from prioritizing value-driven goals. So just remember, value is key. Whatever you do in the world of project management, whether it's um, an agile or predictive approach, you got to be thinking of value, value, value. Value needs to be the number one thing. All right, let's move on. So in summary, value is the ultimate indicator. Value could be realized at any point. Value could be tangible or intangible. Value could be qualitative or quantitatively measured. Focus on outcomes, not only the deliverable, but outcomes and adapt to maximize value. Let's move on to the next one. 3.5, recognize, evaluate, and respond to system interactions. If I was gonna summarize this, the summary will be, be a big picture view type of a person. In other words, see the big picture and how everything interweaves, not just the tiny little pictures, but see everything together as a system. So it's rather important for a project manager successful project managers, they see the big picture, they see the system's view of things. Uh, they see how the various parts integrate, right? So the importance, consideration of system interactions in projects is crucial. 
actively addressing system interactions offers numerous advantages. An example, recognizing traffic flows effect on public transportation and its impact on local businesses in city planning. That's a macro view of how many pieces are woven together. The core concepts are systems thinking, seeing projects as interrelated parts, understanding connections and relationships in a project, understanding feedback loops, changes in one area leading to changes in another. And I have to be honest, because this sounds a little bit, for some of you who have not been there, it may sound abstract or esoteric, but just think about putting together a Lego piece, right? You have the box. The box shows you the system, all the Lego pieces interwoven, you know, whether it's a big old plane or whether it's a tank or, or ship. You know what I'm talking about. You've seen some of these really awesome builds. You would have no clue <laughs> what to build if you didn't see the cover of the box. That's the systems think. So as a project manager, it is your job to apply yourself to see the big picture, right? To see how everything is interwoven. And honestly, if you are not able to see it as a person, as a solo person, that's okay. You're not meant to have all the all the ideas, right? A lot of instances, you have different people on the project that understand their map of the world and they bring their piece of the world to the macro view. And you as a project manager, you should understand that you don't always have the answers. But if collectively as a team, you're able to see how all the pieces fit, then you're in great shape. But definitely as a project manager, as much as possible, try to see the macro elements and see how the micro elements fit to give that. That's really what this is about. All right, some of the things we talk about here in addition to feedback loops are resilience, projects adapting to changes for long-term success. An example could be software model changes, construction sequence, marketing efforts, and coastal building designs. And just understanding how everything in those examples interweave. The various tools and techniques we could mention here. And when I say tools and techniques, I'm not talking about Pembox 6. I'm just talking in general. System maps, diagrams showcasing system components, root cause analysis, risk management, flow charts um, for order fulfillment, investigating supply chain delays, and backup suppliers. Think about some hypothetical case studies, right? A manufacturing company revamped the production line leading to a 20% output increase. In order to pull that off, you gotta be able to see all the parts in that system. Or in a software company, ensuring seamless integration between software modules, you've gotta see the big picture. So as a project manager, it's one of the things you expected to do even if you need a lot of help from other people to see it, I encourage you. You know, we talk about expert judgment in the world of the Project Management Institute. An expert judgment doesn't come from one person. It could come from a number of people. So I encourage you to think expert judgment as coming from a variety of sources. All right, let's move on. So the summary is it is important to see things systemically. Don't just be a micro view project manager, be a macro uh, view project manager as well. Be able to see 
the entire system and work with the team to en envisage what that should look like. There are going to be challenges, right? Obstacles such as resistance to change could prevent a vision from coming together like it should for you to be able to see what the system looks like. Uh, strategies like continuous training and open communication does help when you're trying to see things more systemically. So a few more tips before we move on. A project is a system. So you got to see the different parts of the system. Systems thinking is really more like having a holistic view as I gave the example of the Lego box and systems constantly change. So be aware of that. And you as a project manager and as a team, you should be ready to respond to system interactions, right? There's a tendency to get frustrated in an experienced lens of, inexperienced lens of project management. If you're not that experienced, you could get really frustrated when you see things around you changing. But part of this new world of PMI is to enable change, to embrace change and to effectively manage change. And this is part of it, systems thinking. All right, let's move on to number six, demonstrate leadership behaviors. What exactly is leadership? Well, leadership is all about influence. John Maxwell, my mentor, he says, a true measure of leadership is influence. It's nothing more, nothing less. It's all about how you can positively, impactfully influence the team. How do you impact the team? Well, you start off with your position, but your position is not enough. You've got to grow beyond just saying, I'm the project manager. Okay, well, you may be able to influence me a little bit by saying you're the project manager, but it's not enough. You got to build trust. You got to be likable. No one wants Oscar the Grouch as a project manager. Be likable, then begin to win small wins with a team, right? Then bigger wins. You know, no one gets the maximum amount of influence by doing Mickey Mouse wins, you know, all respect to Mickey, right? <laughs> Mickey's a rock star, but you know what I mean. I'm talking about the small wins. Small wins are good, but we can't stay in the small wins realm forever. we got to build with a team, right? And then you gain more influence by affecting individuals, people, by giving value back to people, by being there, being a team player. You affect your peers by being a team player. You affect management in different ways by lightening the leader's load, you know, by letting the leader know what they may have been blindsided by. These are ways that you can increase in leadership. So effective project management combines leadership and management. There's a difference. Leadership is all about relational. Management is all about keeping the status quo, keeping the systems and the structure. And there's a place for that. You know, I, I want to make it clear that leadership and management are not at war with each other. There's this misnomer that they are. They're not at war with each other. Leadership is all about inspiring and guiding the team towards a shared vision. Management is all about planning, organizing, and controlling project activities. And it's okay. There's a place for that. Okay. They're not at war with each other. Demonstrating both qualities is important. On a complex software project, leadership, inspiring the team with a clear product vision, clarifying the vision as much as possible, and management, organizing tasks, monitoring progress, ensuring adherence to the process, both are important. There are different ways we could look at leadership. 
right? The different leadership styles, transformational, servant, situational, they all have their place. And then we have the Hersey Blanchard model, which is very much tailored to the idea of dynamic situational leadership. And a great leader understands this and they're able to adapt the approach. Am I going to be more directive? Am I going to be more supportive? Am I going to be very directive and very supportive? Or am I going to be a whole lot less directive, maybe laissez-faire, right? So as a project manager, you need to understand you got to adapt. You can't have a one-size-fits-all for every situation, for everyone, every time. That, that is going to lead to failure. In the world of predictive construction, uh, say a predictive construction project, build a new hospital, transformational leadership could be very helpful in the planning phase. Emphasizing the project's importance in the community healthcare could be very important at this stage. Take, for example, an agile project, situational leadership during phases of uncertainty. You've got to be flexible. You've got to be able to adapt depending on what is going on. So having a flexible leadership style in the world of agile, you, you definitely need that. And then an approach of encouraging collaboration and innovation. Got to be ready to adapt. That's why we call Agile Adaptive. What about leading through challenging phases? You got to demonstrate those leadership behaviors throughout, be it a technology upgrade project or be it a reorganization. You got to be on your A game as, as a dynamic leader. Um, another example will be setting clear objectives during planning guiding the team in creating a comprehensive plan, fostering a collaborative environment. See the word guided, right? Guidance, influence, and things such as that. In the world of Agile, we want these behaviors definitely for the team to be able to facilitate its own meetings. We want to empower the team, remove obstacles, ensure that communication is transparent and adapting to changes. These are ways that we show leadership. You know, I've heard from some scrum masters, they feel a little bit threatened when, when the team becomes more independent, but I'm like, that's actually good. You should engage and enable the team to be able to facilitate its own meetings, to be able to, to move cards across the board or whatever it is. So it's, it's all leadership. So the, the summary is effective project management combines leadership and management. Project management, I know it sounds oxymoronal because we say project management, but it's, it's honestly, it's more leadership than anything else. You could have all the tools in the world and fail as a project manager if you are not a great leader. If you're not great at bringing people together, collaborating, being a servant leader, being a situational leader, being empathetic, being a, a good communicator, being able to cast the vision and recast the vision. If, if you're not able to do all these things, you're not gonna be that effective as a project manager, right? Another thing project managers could do in areas they know they're lacking is just engage the team more. Have someone on the team who has that strong point come alongside you and help you. So it's not about being a rock star. You know, in the world of predictive, a lot of times it's all this central, centralized leadership stuff. But in the world of Agile, it's decentralized leadership. 
So this is where you need to leverage the power of the team. A lot of times in the world of Agile, even though you as a servant leader or project manager is able to do everything, where's the fun in that? Get people on the team along so that they can grow in those respects as well. All right, so summary of leadership. Leadership is all about influence. Like I said, great John Maxwell said, the true measure of leadership is influence. Nothing more, nothing less. John says, he who thinks he leadeth, but has no one following him is only taking a walk. So we don't want to be taking walks alone. We truly want to make an impact by influencing. And sometimes the influence doesn't even need to come from you. It could come from someone else. All right. Anyone can lead. Leadership is not the same as authority. Effective leaders adapt and understand motivational differences between your team members. When it comes to being an effective leader, honesty, integrity, and eth ethical conduct are huge. All right. This is one of my favorites. It's tailoring. And why do I say this is one of my favorites? Because whenever I go to companies to train them in project management, it's getting a, a little bit dark. So I think I can get this window open. It's very sunny here in London today. So when we talk about PMBOK Guide 6th edition or 7th edition, there's this misnomer that we have to use everything in the toolbox. And that's actually not right. Uh, you don't have to use everything in the toolbox. It's something called tailoring in the world of PMI. And tailoring just means you are adjusting the tools the techniques, the methods, whatever you use as inputs and so on to your project. That's all it means. So the good news is there's a lot of tools. The even better news is you don't have to use all of them. You tailor them based on what you're working on. So tailoring based on context is all about customizing your project approach like tailoring a suit. Core concepts understand the project goals and the desired outcomes, understand the stakeholders, understand the project's environments and the constraints, and then you know which of these pawns on the screen to choose. Am I gonna choose this one or this or this? It really depends on what you're working on, right? There are different objectives for, for product launches stakeholders in city park projects, regulated project environments, and budget constraints could all be factors in determining which tools am I going to use in this specific project. Here's another example, agile approach for tight deadlines, quicker iterations and feedback. You don't always have to do a, a two-week iteration or a four-week iteration. Have you ever thought of doing a one-week iteration? Have you ever thought of doing a three-day iteration? you got to tailor this stuff, whether you're in the world of predictive or in the world of agile. When it comes to risk management for uncertain projects, you've got to prioritize risk identification and mitigation. When it comes to communication for complex environments, you've got to really prioritize making it as crystal clear, clear communication in intricate settings. An example here is agile for software projects with tight deadlines, risk management and research and development and communication in multinational projects, those are things you want to look out for even more. Tips for the application of the idea of tailoring. You've got to be flexible and adaptable. And 
my major tip for you in the world of tailoring is give it up. Just give it up and let the team decide. Don't dictate what you think is the best, especially if the team is a mature team. You can ask the team, what approach do you think we should use? Or which tools do you think we should use? Right. And let it be more of dialogue. So stakeholder input, regular engagement to align with project objectives. Sometimes the stakeholders even know what they want to see used. Um, an example would be on, on certain government projects, the stakeholder, the government, they know what their work breakdown structure should look like. So they request that your work breakdown structure conform to the CWBS, the contractual or the contract work breakdown structure. So tailoring, it cuts across whether you're in predictive, whether you're in agile. Also apply common sense, right? Why on earth do you want to use <clears throat> TCPI, CPI, SPI, EV, ETC, EAC on a two-day project or a one-week project? It doesn't make sense. Before the metrics are here, your project is over. You get the point, okay? So summary is emphasize tailoring based on context, there are a lot of PMs who think they have to use every single process and every single tool. And you don't, you know, this is why the PMI's PMBOK 6 was demonized because a lot of folks thought this is unrealistic. This is a fairy tale. How do you apply all these 49 processes to every single project. And unfortunately, those folks, they they missed the memo. <laughs> they, they missed this principle that said Taylor. All right, you get the idea, let's move on. So each project is unique. Success is based on adapting. You gotta use the most appropriate method and understand that tailoring is iterative and continuous. Moving on to 3.8, build quality into processes and deliverables. So what are we talking about here? What is quality? I've already given you the 411 on quality. Quality is all about fitness for use, conformance to requirements, and customer satisfaction. If you're really doing a good job in quality, you should have checked the boxes and then gone a step further to say Kaizen, continuous improvement, right? So don't just stop at fitness for use, conformance to requirements, and customer satisfaction. Go a step further and, you know, make it even more profound by, by throwing in the Kaizen, the Kaizen clause. All right, so you gotta build quality in. So building quality in is important because if there's no quality, you're likely to not have stakeholder satisfaction. You ever been to your favorite restaurant and they served you and you looked at the food and you're like, my goodness, this is garbage. I've never, <laughs> I've never seen something so horrendous. This isn't quality, again fitness for use, conformance to requirements. If those two are missing, it's likely that customer satisfaction is gonna be missing. And it's likely that that establishment is not practicing Kaizen. So all those are important. The benefits, integrating quality throughout the project, when you are building the right stuff, that's step one. When you are checking to make sure you're building the right stuff the right way. And step three is making sure that what was finally built does indeed conform to what the definition of quality is. 
Example, quality in car manufacturing ensures customer satisfaction and reduces post-sale issues. But I put it to you that quality started right there on the shop floor. With the very first widget, the very first bolt, the very first tire, quality should have started there. Core concepts. When you're fulfilling customer or user requirements, got to think quality right from the get-go. Building the right stuff is quality, right? We got to work on systemic actions to achieve a desired outcome, a desired result. The deliverables in this context are going to be the outputs produced by the project. Examples could be smartphones, software development steps, and tangible project outputs. I once went to a store to fix my phone, this phone. This is a true story. I hope, I hope my friends from Apple are going to watch this because I want to have a go at the people at Apple. I love, I love Apple. <laughs> my, my iPhone. I went to the, I, the Apple store somewhere in Arizona a few weeks before flying down to London. And I wanted a simple service. I knew that my battery was messed up and I just wanted the battery to be replaced. But they unceremoniously dismissed my request and said, nah, that phone won't work. You gotta. And I was a little bit offended because I expected a better level of quality. I expected some focus on my unique circumstance and to actually attempt, you know, giving me some advice, but they dismissed it. So at the end of the day, when I came to London, I went to a store just around the corner within 10 minutes. The problem I had that I went to, to the Apple store for was fixed. Apple could not solve my problem. I was very disappointed with Apple. Um, in my mind, that's not quality service. Quality service um, is standing behind your product every step of the way, even if the stakeholder brings an outlandish request for something you feel, oh, it's obsolete, we're now on 14. That's not a 14, so we're not going to fix that. And we, we can't help you. Just go buy a 14. I didn't think that was very good service. I'm just sharing my experience. What I think is quality. Quality service is being able to, to stand behind your product every step of the way or referring, you know, the customer to where they can get help. You know, I'm into music. Another example on the flip side is COG. I have a called keyboard that was bought way back. It's called a Trident and it developed problems, but the people at COG could direct me to where I could get help. You see, they, they didn't say, oh, we can help you uh, ship it in. No, they directed me to where I could get help and I did get help. So anyway, Tim Cook, <laughs> you know, I love Apple, but I'm not, I'm not, I'm not really a fan of the service in the Apple stores, but anyway, so talking about quality smartphones, software development steps, that just came to mind. All right, let's move on. I know the Apple fanatics are going to be mad. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm an Apple fan too, but I'm not, just not a fan of the service. Uh, when it comes to tools and techniques, quality planning, uh, identifying and strategizing for project quality requirements, quality assurance, monitoring and evaluating the project for quality adherence. Like I said, don't wait till the product is out keep checking the process. Quality assurance is checking the process. Quality control is checking the product. Quality control is correcting deviations from quality standards. 
examples, construction project standards, software product reviews, and product retesting after bug fixes. All of these are examples of quality. Application examples, your quality plan, you got to outline benchmarks when you're planning. For example, a new beverage product, quality assurance reviews, periodic checks for website compatibility or quality control procedures, reworking or discarding defective clothing batches. You know, I often use the analogy, prevention is better than cure. Quality assurance is prevention. Quality control is the cure, but prevention is better than cure. Imagine having to discard defective clothing batches as opposed to catching when the defects were going down. You wanna catch before the defects happen. And in that way, you minimize waste. Another example, case study one, pharmaceutical company with rigorous quality checks. And these quality checks, I'm talking about checking the process. Another example will be a tech company with quality focused software products and all through the process, quality assurance, quality control are upheld. In conclusion, you want to embed quality in every step of what you do, um, not just the product. Like, like in my example, I love Apple products. They're fantastic. They're great. Um, I love the finish. I love the ergonomics. But when it comes to service, I'm not very impressed. You know, um, I have an even uh, similar example. I had an iPad for my daughter. I took the iPad, same thing. Oh, this, this has a problem. It won't work, blah, blah, blah. Come to find out when I bought a new phone, I used the adapter from the new phone on, on the iPad, working as good as new. The service was not what I expected. So quality is fitness for use, conformance to requirements, customer satisfaction, and Kaizen continuous improvement. And trust me, if your customer is not satisfied, quality has not been achieved. It's a very individual perspective, which is why I encourage project managers to think of quality from that unique project's lens. All right, so quality is satisfying stakeholder expectations, fulfilling project and product requirements, meeting deliverable acceptance criteria, and project quality, effective and appropriate processes being included in the project. Not just everything under the sun, but having the right processes in the project. All right. Number nine, navigate complexity. Success usually comes to those who are too busy to be looking for it, said Thoreau. All right. Let's move into what exactly we mean by navigating complexity. When we talk about navigating complexity, it means two dimensions here. You can have technical uncertainty and you can have requirements uncertainty. This is very well documented in the Stacy model. For those of you that have read the Agile Practice Guide, page 14, uh, the Stacy model is there. You could just Google Stacy model. Ralph Douglas Stacy, uh, rest his soul, is a creator of that. But the complexity model, the Stacy complexity model, it just shows you you could either have requirements uncertainty when the customer 
or the stakeholders are unsure of what they want or when it's not very clear what they're looking for. But you can also have technical uncertainty where you know what they want, but in terms of how to do it, you're not very clear on how to pull that off technically, or you could have both, double whammy. Then that's going towards anarchy, right, in, at the extreme. So in order to navigate complexity, you've got to bring one of those factors down or two of those factors down into the realm of controllability where it's not full-blown chaos and anarchy, but it's within a realm that you can manage at least in iterations. And this is where Agile comes in, right? It's been, it's been proven time and time again. Uh, just uh, do a search when you get a moment after this, Google it, the VCF project, the virtual case file project. The virtual case file project was a project that was undertaken by the FBI. And the FBI, they were looking to replace the antiquated um, record system, case management system. <clears throat> and unfortunately, they wasted hundreds of millions of dollars before they realized, oh, it is so complex that the best way to do it is to tackle it from an agile perspective. And that's what they did. And that's how they were eventually able to get the project complete. So you've got to navigate complexity sensibly, right? There are times when predictive just won't cut it. And being impatient, looking for results, you know, similar to what FBI was looking for, results, 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 but doing it the wrong way, you got to just take another look and say, could it be that this needs to be more of a hybrid or this needs to be more of an agile approach? All right. So in order to tackle things that are complex, um, you need to understand uh, both the technicality and the uh, human behavior, uh, the system behavior, and things that are uh, ambiguous and uncertain. These are the three things that really cause complexity, uh, human behavior, system behavior, and uncertainty and ambiguity. So there's a place where risk could come in to make a situation appear even more complex, even uh, a lot more hazy. Um, human interactions can make things complex. And the way systems interact, there's a term that we use in project management called emergence. We've used this in PMBOK 6 as well. Um, you could have emergent situations that are as a result of system interactions that yield something totally different than what you would have ever expected or some human interactions that might lead to something that you never even expected. So breaking things down is a great way of dealing with complexity. Um, complexity could be triggered by events and conditions. Uh, complexity could just suddenly emerge as a result of you understanding a particular concept. And as much as possible, you want to use methods to reduce the amount and impact of complexity. So to navigate complexity, the summary is break things down into smaller, more manageable pieces. Um, this is where Agile thrives, right? Agile is a great answer to complexity as the FBI found out. All right, let's move a little bit quicker here. We're going into risk management and we're talking about optimizing risk responses. So 
the summary of optimizing risk responses is choose the best response that gives you the biggest bang for your buck. If you're working on a project and you encounter risk of a huge nature, you gotta you gotta respond with with a risk response that is on par with the enormity and the significance of that risk. That's all that this is saying. So optimize the responses. I'm gonna go very quickly through this straight to my summary, okay, in the interest of time. I've taken over an hour so far. All right, so in order to optimize risk responses, you gotta understand what a risk is. My buddy, the risk doctor, he says it's, uncertainty that matters. That is what risk is. Not just any old uncertainty, but uncertainty that can impact your project positively or negatively. We need to be aware of individual risks as well as overall risks. Risks should be addressed continuously throughout the project, not just a one-time thing. We have the concept of risk attitude, what is your attitude as a stakeholder towards risk? Are you risk seeking or are you risk averse? Um, we also talk about risk appetite. How much risk are you willing to take on to pursue an opportunity? Think about it like this. The level of hunger of an individual cannot be measured obviously by an instrument, but the extreme or the extent to which an individual will go to pursue a meal it will tell you how hungry they are. So we often say that risk appetite can be measured by how much risk a stakeholder is willing to take on in pursuit of an opportunity. That's it. All right. So you need to respond appropriately, effectively, and realistically to risk. you got to make sure that your risk response is agreed upon. And you also need to be aware of risk owners. You have risk owners, people who... Um, whose objectives are going to be impacted by the risk. Usually we say they own the risk. Uh, whatever the response is going to be for those risks is carried out usually by who we call a risk response owner or a risk action owner, if you will. So the risk action owner and the risk owner should work together to ensure that that is taken care of. And to be quite honest, on some projects, it's the project manager for the risk owner and the risk action owner. Um, but on some projects, you may have um, a more robust team where different individuals can do that. All right, let's move to number 11. Embrace adaptability and resiliency. Again, I'm gonna go straight to my wrap up. For those of you that just come in, we're taking a look at uh, Pembox 7. Uh, for those of you watching after the fact, uh, if you wanted to go a little bit deeper into this stuff, you can find my Pembox 7. Uh, training program. It's 12 hours. You can find that on Udemy with my buddy Roy. All right, number 11. Embrace adaptability and resiliency. Adaptability is all about you being adaptable to respond to change. And we have so many examples of companies that were not adaptable and companies that were adaptable. Case in point, Blockbuster. Blockbuster is an example of a company that was not adaptable and therefore, they were not resilient either. They did not stand the test of time. When technology changes, when there's that baton change, you can tell those who, who were adaptable and those who were not. Another case in point would be Kodak. You know, 
Kodak, Instant Images, where are they today? No, the big kahuna, uh, the iPhones, you know, the Apples of this world, uh, the the Samsungs and the Android manufacturers of the world, but but Kodak is nowhere to be found. I could give you example after example. Toys R Us is another example. When the world of commerce changed to be heavily online, Toys R Us, they faded out. And you have the likes of Amazon who were there. And we could go on and on and on. So two things. One, adaptable, right? The ability to respond to changing market conditions, changing technologies. Let, let me have a go at the resistance, the AI resistance. A, a lot of AI resistant people out there saying, oh, I'm, AI is going to take my job, so I hate it, and I'm not going to learn it. AI is against the human race. I feel sorry for you because you, you just need to be educated on what AI is all about. AI is just another tool. In my mind, it's like drawn carriages by horse versus a car, right? How has the car taken away the job of the horse? Or how has electricity taken away you know, the, the jobs of the, the candlestick makers? I mean, come on now get with the program, it's technology. So being adaptable and resilient means you're adaptable to respond to change. You have the ability to absorb the impact of changes or to recover from whatever it is and to focus on outcomes, you know, as opposed to being focused on, on process. Some people are just so heavily focused on process and they're so focused on what they want to keep rooted in, in the ground for no reason. No, that's not being adaptable and, and you will not be resilient that way. So be adaptable and that helps resiliency. Part of being resilient, part of your game plan to be resilient should be to be agile. Mike Tyson said it well. He said, everyone has a plan until they're punched in the mouth. So what happens? You're on the canvas. Where's your little plan? <laughs> you got to be adaptable. You got you to gotta be ready to change your plan. That's all I'm saying. Okay. I'm obviously passionate about that one, as you can tell. Let's go to the final one. Final one in the principles. Enable change to achieve the intended business value or the intended future state. Because when you think about the future state, it really boils down to the value that you're seeking. So you've got to understand the link between outcomes and value, right? George Bernard Shaw says, progress is impossible without change. And those who cannot change their minds cannot change anything. Like I said before this section on, on AI, you know, you, you got to welcome, you got to welcome that change. So enabling change means ensuring that projects deliver outcomes aligned with business goals you got to enable change to get to that future state that you're looking for. Consider an organization's initiative to adopt environmental friendly practices by implementing a waste reduction program. The project manager's role is to ensure that the waste reduction measures are effectively integrated into daily operations, realizing the intended value of sustainability. But you see, if people don't comply, that future state isn't going to be achieved. If people don't value 
that change and you're not able to effectively sell it and effectively lead as a servant, people aren't coming for the ride, you're not going to achieve that. During the planning stage, the project manager aligns the waste reduction program with the organization's sustainability objectives by involving key stakeholders early, keyword, right? And establishing performance metrics, the manager sets the foundation for achieving the intended business value. Talk about the world of agile. A project manager engages with end users to gather feedback on the waste reduction program's effectiveness. One of the things that you're seeing here is that the stakeholder is very prevalent. In order for you to enable change, you've got to get stakeholders along for the ride, right? By quickly adapting strategies based on user insights, the organization can achieve the desired sustainability outcomes. Let's go straight to my summary for all this. We don't have a whole lot of time. I've already taken an hour of your time. So enabling change to achieve the envisioned future state, there's got to be a structured approach to change, right? Regardless of the model you're following, whether it's the ADCAR model, whether it's the FIPIMS model, whether it's John Carter's model, whether it's the General Electric you know, model, whatever model you're using, just use, just have a model. And at the forefront of whatever model you're using, put people first. You want to bring SAP into the firm, put people first. You want to introduce a new initiative in the firm, put people first. Right. We talk about change. We've got to think about internal and external sources. It can be challenging to accept change. We talk about the Kubler-Ross curve or the J curve, and it just shows the valley of despair that some people could go into when there's change looming. And we've got to help people work through that change. When we're trying to change too much too soon, it could lead to change fatigue and you burn your people out. It's not a good thing. Baby steps when it comes to change. Baby steps, okay? Like I said, stakeholders are at the forefront of any change. And if your stakeholders don't buy into it, you bang your head on a brick wall, nothing's going to happen because the people aren't going to come for the ride. You know, John Maxwell, he says, people buy into the leader first and then the vision. So hopefully by the time you get to this fork in the road where there needs to be change, hopefully you've built enough trust equity as a project manager, as a leader with your people for them to know that you don't mean harm, right? For them to know you don't mean harm in, in the change that um, you're trying to introduce. All right, we are at the end of the 12 principles. We took a little bit over an hour to do that. Um, at this point, I'd like to shift gears here and I'd like to go very quickly into a different topic. And that is the performance domains. We are literally gonna whiz through this. Um, I'm not gonna spend too long on them. Hopefully we can do this again some other day. So let's jump in. All right. At this point, I'd like for you to ask any questions. You've got any questions about the uh, content that I've covered so far, please feel free uh, to put them into the chat. Um, again, I want to say thanks for all those joining. Thanks to LinkedIn user. I hope you're well. And everyone else who joined uh, and who I know that this is peak time, you know, 
for those of you on the East Coast and, and those of you on, on, on PST, you're just getting to work. <laughs> so I know that you're gonna, many of you are gonna be watching this after the fact, but uh, don't hesitate to drop me um, a question and I'll, I'll be very happy to, to answer the question. But um, let's jump into the stakeholder performance domain. The stakeholder performance domain is all about being in the world of your stakeholder. That's really the summary of the stakeholder performance domain, living in the world of your stakeholder and having empathy. In the world of agile, right? If you wanted to transform this into an agile ideology, you could just say this is customer collaboration over contract negotiation. That's the mindset. I am going to collaborate with my customer to get a win-win. What does it say in the principles in principle one, right? My agile aficionados, I know you're out there. Your highest priority is to satisfy the customer through early and continuous delivery of valuable product. That's the mindset. That's the summary. So if I was going to give you the 411 of the stakeholder performance domain, it would be this. Number one, intentionally identify your stakeholders. Who could this project affect? Who could be affected by the project? Watch this. Who thinks that they could be affected by the project? They're stakeholders as well. And it's your job to effectively engage and manage the involvement. You know, sometimes you just got to stem certain stakeholders' involvement because that is too much. They almost want to take the team's job. And no, we don't want that. They're eager beavers. And you can understand their interest. But sometimes you got to effectively manage the engagement, right? And then the next thing you do is you engage them. And, and lastly, you check to ensure that you are engaging them at the right level. Say four things. One, identify the stakeholders. Two, plan how to engage them. Three, engage them. Four, monitor the engagement. That's it. And this is where your understanding of previous editions of the Pembroke Guide come in. Uh, because it gives you a more structured framework. It's not just full of bullet points and great ideas. No, it's very structured, which is why I'm giving you the four main things. All right, and that's pretty much it. Identifying and analyzing stakeholders is key. When you understand the stakeholder, then you can better plan how to engage them. Then you can better engage them and then you can monitor to make sure the engagement is appropriate and it's right on par with what you need. All right. So I'm going to skip some of these. We have some great tools talked about here, like stakeholder mapping. We could use a stakeholder power interest grid. We could use a stakeholder engagement assessment matrix. There's so many things, but I'm going to skip those because I, I am pressed for time. Let's go on to number two, team performance domain. If I was going to convert this team performance domain idea into the world of Agile, I would just say build projects around motivated individuals. Right from the get-go, you got to get the hiring right. You know, my mentor, John Maxwell, he talks about 
getting the right people on the bus. But not just getting the right people on the bus, he also goes further to talk about getting the right people on the bus in the right seats. So it's twofold. They've got to be a fit for the organization, but they've also got to be a great fit for the team, you see. So getting the right people on the bus, getting the right people on the bus in the right seats, how do you do that? This is a newsflash for my friends in HR. Begin to understand that when you're hiring people into a firm, you're not hiring people into a firm alone. You're hiring people onto a team in a firm. So how about getting the people that they're going to be working with involved in the hiring process? You know, a lot of you from HR, you already got the memo. You already do this. You already do this. And kudos to you if you're doing it. If you're getting the team that is the team in focus involved in the interview, bravo, you're doing the right thing. But if you're not getting the right team in front of the interviewee, then there's going to be a rude shock when you realize it's not a good fit, right? So in the team performance domain, the encouragement is simple. Hire the right people, develop them, mentor them, coach them, train them, build an atmosphere of collaboration. Like the Agile Manifesto tells us, give the team the environment and support they need, trust them to get the job done. Let me give you a six-step process overall when it comes to the concept of resource management. Number one, plan. How do we get the team members we need? How do we get the people we need? That's number one. Who do we need, right? And then in addition to that, have some guardrails in place. Have some team agreement, some team contract, social contract, ground rules and things of that nature. You may choose to have those in place. Like if they're just three or four team members, well, the sooner the better, right? Get a contract in place, social contract, team contract, same thing. And you, you can just Google this. If you haven't seen what a team agreement looks like, Google it, you'll find examples. But that can be the beginning because a team agreement is not etched in stone, it evolves. So every so often have the team come around and decide, is this still good? Do we need to add some other things? Maybe definition of ready is obsolete, definition of done might be obsolete in that particular charter and you might need to renew them and things like that. Um, how to resolve conflict, communication in a team, um, the Elmo concept, right? <laughs> Enough, let's move on. How do you move on in a meeting when someone is in broken record mode? And things such as that. Um, friendly fines, friendly penalties. You know, I was training the people at Yale one day and someone came in late and someone shouted from the back, hey, that's $5. They had a friendly fine approach. And all of these are just great things to put into your team charter or your team contract. Uh, and the team understands, okay, I shouldn't come late for meetings. If I do, I'm going to be fined and things like that, right? So one, plan how and who you need. Um, two, do an estimate, a very good estimate of uh, resources that you need. And when I say resources, in the world of PMI, this is more general. 
because it could be used for human equipment, material supplies, and facilities. But you got to plan, and then you got to estimate, right? Step two is to estimate the activity resources. Then step three is you got to acquire the team, right? Acquire the resources, but acquire the humans, because now we're talking about team. So acquire the team. Then step four would be to develop the team, right? Coaching, mentoring, team building, um, synergizing, offsites, whatever you need to do to get your team to its optimum state. That needs to be your focus as a servant leader, as a project manager, whatever your role is, you, you want to enable that synergy. And, and a lot of times it comes alive from the development. Then number five is to manage. It's called manage the team, but it's really, it's really code for leadership. So leadership, give the team feedback, help them to understand um, what to improve on, uh, give them the right accolades and and reward and recognition as a team, um, small wins, big wins alike. And the last thing we talk about in this realm of resources is really more keeping an eye to make sure that resources are indeed utilized as planned. And we could we could look at that from a more um, physical resource lens, but in reality, we also ensure that the people on the team are being utilized to the greatest capacity. It's just business. It's just business. This is not anti-agile. It's not pro-predictive. It's just it just is what it is, right? If if you hire Phil for for forty man hours every week, you expect to get you know forty man hours worth out of Phil or close, right? Um, maybe some you could cut some slack and say at least thirty five or really depends. But if you count going for meetings and you count, you know, work-life balance, then yeah, you're not, you're not going to micromanage for every single minute in the 40 hours. That's not how to do it. But within reason, you would expect to get a good return. All right. So that's pretty much it. As far as the team performance domain is concerned, uh, we talk about building and leading high performance teams. We talk about combining diverse skill sets, understanding diversity and inclusion, understanding how to effectively resolve conflict, facilitating dialogue. All of these are great things when it comes to team leadership. All right, let's move on to the next one. The development performance domain. The summary in the development performance domain is don't be predictive or agile ignorant. It amazes me when I hear people say the only way to do a project is predictive. Seriously, in 2023, what planet are you from? Or someone says, the only way is agile. If you're not using Scrum, you're a charlatan. Seriously? It's shameful that people still think that way, that the only way to do a project is agile. <laughs> the only way to run a project is Scrum. The Scrum zealots, Kanban zealots, let me have a go at you. You need to change your thinking. Kanban is not the only way. It's a great way. Trust me, I love Kanban. Right, I have a Kanban tool on my phone. I love Kanban. I have physical boards that I use for Kanban. I've written 12 books using Kanban. I love it. And a comic book, if I may add, right? And I love Scrum, which is why I've dedicated a lot of my time in the certifications I've, I've uh, chased in, in following and, and getting into that mindset you know, to be more effective on my projects. But I can tell you that is not the only way. 
Scrum is not the only way. Kanban is not the only way. Pembuck, seven, six, whatever. Those of you still, you got your Pembuck one, more power to you. My friends from, from 1996, more power to you. Look, it's not about the tools. Let's learn from the Agile Manifesto. Individuals and interactions over processes and tools. You see, this is why in PMI's research, PMI found out that organizations that are predictive in their delivery, but agile in their thinking, they outperform the organizations that are strictly predictive in their delivery and strictly predictive in their thinking. Wow. You mean just having an agile way of thinking, even though I'm delivering predictively, can change the value and the outcome? Absolutely. So it's 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 about the individuals and the interactions over the processes and tools. Seriously, which is why when I see the 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 horrendous images of scaling or what what is supposed to be scaling, I just say no. I'm sorry. That's that's safe stuff. That's not agile. You might as well just call it something else, but that that ain't the Agile I know. The Agile I know is adaptable, it's flexible, it's malleable, it's moldable, you know. And I know that the, the safe zealots are out there, and it's just the truth. How do you read the Agile Manifesto and reconcile the four values with that stuff? How how do you? How? Let's just let's be honest, call it spade a spade. Call it something else. Call it, call it high, but the don't call it agile, you know. Um, so you, you got to be really honest as a professional. When you take a look at what you're using, you could use a predictive approach. You could use an agile approach. You could use a hybrid approach. But don't try to hoodwink people calling what is not agile, agile. And that's, that's what I'm against. Um, I know a lot of people have found success using a smattering of tools, and it's okay, you know. But let's not mislead people by saying this is agile and it's not. Um, so when it comes to the development performance domain, what PMI is saying here is you've got to choose what makes sense for your unique circumstance, your unique project, uh, because it's not always predictive. All right, I'm going to get off my soapbox. So I'll be here till tomorrow. Let's just move on. Let's move on. Let's go on to the next one, planning performance domain. The planning performance domain just sensitizes you to plan what is needed, plan what is needed, plan using a mindset of the variables of integration, scope, schedule, cost, quality, resources, communication, risk, procurement, and stakeholder. There are 10 of them, right? So when you plan, put on the thinking hat of scope, schedule, there's going to be interchange. You're going to have cycles of repetition. Scope, schedule, cost, quality, resources. You're going to have cycles. You know, the misnomer that I'm done with scope, then I move into schedule, then I move into cost. It's wrong. No, that's not how it works. You got scope. Then you could think a little bit of schedule when you're sufficiently done, but you're not really done with scope if you've not thought about schedule. And you're not really done with scope or schedule if you haven't thought about cost. And you're not really done with cost if you have not thought about scope, schedule, cost, 
quality, resources, and risk, not to mention procurement and many other variables. So what I'm saying here is that when you're planning, try to be methodical in your planning, right? Make sure that you've hit all the necessary checkboxes, but not just hit them, make sure you've had some iteration go on where you return back to scope or you return back like you, you you're done with risk return to scope and then you realize oh i'm not even done with scope and as a result of not being done with scope you realize oh i'm not done with schedule and that may take you back to risk so it's multiple loops you know if you were going to draw out how things actually are in project management it's not a linear line. All right, let's move on. I'm going to jump all these to, to just get to the high level so that we can get done here because I've been going for over an hour and I appreciate those of you who are still here. All right, project work performance domain. When you think about project work, it encapsulates scope, the work you're doing, and encapsulates quality, right? The quality of whatever you deliver. So it's not enough for you to just think about scope. You got to think about quality and you got to think about everything else that is interwoven. Your role as a project management coach has ingrained the importance of proactive monitoring and control. Projects operate in dynamic environments, making it essential to manage and mitigate uncertainties. There are many examples that I have here, but in the interest of time, I'm just going to jump straight ahead to a few. Explore predictive project to implement a new inventory management system for a retail chain. You got to oversee the execution and ensure adherence to the project plan. In other words, as the work is being done, check the work. Make sure the scope is what it should be. Make sure people know what they're meant to do and build quality in. Quality assurance is big. You want to integrate quality assurance processes throughout the life cycle. What is the difference between QA and QC? This is a question I would like to address if I'm able to. Let me see if I can uh, write this up here real quick. So we have quality assurance and we have quality control. What is the difference? Quality assurance is all about process. Quality control is all about product. Checking the process is QA. Checking the product is QC, and both are important, right? So you got to plan what quality is, then you got to check the process, then you got to check the product. Okay, my friends on YouTube at this time, I want to ask you if you got any questions, put them in the comment box if you're able, or in the chat box. My friends on LinkedIn, you got any questions, put them in because we're going to be rounding up pretty quick after this. But I'm talking about uh, project work. This is it, right? Integrate quality assurance processes throughout the life cycle and conduct regular reviews and audits. All right, let's move on. The delivery performance domain. Quality is not an act, it's a habit. When we talk about delivery, delivery means you are delivering whatever has been built, whatever has been constructed. Um, and the, there's an importance in delivering quality outcomes, not just 
quality deliverables, but quality outcomes. Uh, we talk about meticulous planning, continuous monitoring, effective control. These are all things that lead us to our goal. And again, the concept of quality comes in here. Okay, I'm going to jump to the end. Uh, the journey of project delivery is continuous. Now, when we talk about delivery in a predictive environment, we often talk about just a one-time delivery. But in the world of Agile, delivery is looked at as being continuous in some instances, but also very regular, okay, in others. Okay, getting ready to round up here. We've got two more. Uh, we got the measurement performance domain. And uh, when it comes to measurement performance domain, I have to say this is actually one of my favorite domains. And the reason is this. It sensitizes you to measuring the right stuff, measuring the right stuff. There's so many things that we can measure in project management. But the question is, are we measuring what is relevant and are we measuring what will actually add value? So in the seventh edition, the PMI, they make it very clear that you should be measuring the right stuff. And one of the things my buddy Roy and I often say is, if anyone is asking you to measure something, ask them why. But don't just ask them why one time. Ask them why five times. <laughs> and get down to the bottom of why they want what they want. You know, a case in point, there was a manager who said, we're going to measure how many defects, how many bugs this team finds. And based on the number of bugs, we're going to reward them. Oh, so you, you, you want to reward the team, but you want to do it based on the bugs. Well, guess what? The developers and the testers, they were now in cahoots with each other because the developers are buddies of the testers. So that was a foolish metric to measure. It's a foolish metric. Don't, don't do that. Make sure that you're measuring the right stuff for the right purpose. That's the summary of the measurement performance domain. The measurement performance domain wants you to understand there's such a thing as a vanity metric. The vanity metric, it has measurements quite all right, but it does nothing. It offers no value. And it's like measuring the wrong thing. We don't want to do that. Okay. So we want to make sure that we're measuring the right stuff. That's the summary of the, of the measurement performance domain. Measure the right stuff. Um, understand that it's continuous. Measurement provides a foundation for informed decision-making. We're not just measuring for nothing. We're measuring for improvement purposes. We're measuring so that we have the right data and information to get to our future state, whatever that may be. I'm going to read a little bit from uh, PMI's PDF, free PDF, by the way, that you can find on PMI's site about the domains. And it just says, measurement involves assessing project performance and implementing appropriate responses to maintain optimal performance. The measurement performance domain evaluates the degree to which the project deliveries and performance are meeting the intended outcomes. Having timely and accurate information about delivery and performance allows the team to learn and determine the appropriate action to take to address current or expected variances from the desired performance. 
All right, so now you've gotten the idea about measurement. Let's move on to our final one. I'm going to skip all this great stuff. We'll tackle it probably some other time. But let's go to the uncertainty performance domain. The uncertainty performance domain is the final one. In the midst of chaos, there's also opportunity. When we talk about uncertainty, bear in mind that we can have positive uncertainty. We could also have negative uncertainty. So this is all about dealing with a number of things, risk being one of them. Your role as a project management coach prepares you to navigate uncertainty. You really are a coach of sorts, right? You really are a coach. You should be as a project manager because you should be ready to coach the team. It's like the scrum master is a coach for the entire organization. That's something we can actually borrow from the world of agile. Just understanding that, you know, the scrum master is expected to coach the entire organization. Why not the project manager? Why not? Um, we need to acknowledge that projects operate in dynamic environments and understand that we should be proactive in managing uncertainty. So while this is not spelled out as risk, I want you to think about this first and foremost as risk. Projects exist in environments with varying degrees of uncertainty and uncertainty presents threats and opportunities that project teams explore and assess and then decide how to handle. Seven things you need to do as a project manager when it comes to uncertainties. Number one, have a game plan. How am I going to manage uncertainty in this endeavor? That's number one. Number two, identify the uncertainties. In all of my years of training project management, the sad reality is I've only had one organization that has said, Phil, come and teach us how to effectively manage opportunities. One, one out of hundreds, my goodness. It shows how attuned we are to opportunities. Unfortunately, a lot of firms aren't, which is why only one has asked me to do that, a special plastics company. They know who they are. I was really impressed when they asked for that. And um, I worked with my friend Kick on, on coming up with a, a curriculum. Uh, you might be able to find some of Kick's work if it's out there, K-I-K-P-I-N-E-Y. He's done some work in that regard. So he, he, he gave me some ideas on, on how to put this together because a lot of people just don't. But when it comes to uncertainties, being positive, you as a project manager needs to spend some time with the team identifying what are the positive uncertainties here? What could, what could we, what could we gain from this beyond our wildest dreams? What could go so well that could yield additional business? That's one that could position us in the marketplace in an advantageous way. Just brainstorm, have an opportunity brainstorming session and track those opportunities because you might actually be sitting on a pile of revenues and you're blowing past it because you're only looking at the negative. Think about the positive as well. So in, in this domain, we as project professionals should be thinking about not only the threats, but also the opportunities. It says there are many nuances to uncertainty such as risk, associated with not knowing future events, ambiguity associated with not being aware 
of current or future conditions, and complexity associated with dynamic systems with unpredictable outcomes and many others. So, you know, my, my summary in dealing with all of this, my summary is you got to be agile. If I was going to summarize the entire seventh edition, it would be agility. I would say be agile. I would say be able to respond to change, be adaptable, be open-minded. Think about the power of the team. Think about the value of your stakeholders. That's what my summary would be. I'm going to summarize these domains for you. Number one, stakeholder. Think win-win. Think about collaboration. Think about collaboration over negotiation. Number two, team. Give the team the environment and support they need and trust them to get the job done. Number three, development approach and life cycle. Be open-minded and agnostic. Stop clinging to process like process is the answer. It's, it's, it's so comical because the Agile Manifesto authors knew that it was not about that. Each one of those authors came from a different world of process, but they were able to come together and agree on certain things that trump everything else. Individuals and interactions over processes and tools. It boils down to working product over comprehensive documentation. Customer collaboration over contract negotiation and responding to change over following a plan. That's what it boils down to, my friends. All right, so when it comes to the development approach and life cycle domain, just have that in mind. Uh, number four, planning. Again, remember plans are great, but what's even greater is the ability to respond to change, okay? Plans are great, but be able to respond to change. The next one is project work. Project work is great, but it has to be amplified by collaboration, by transparency, and as much as possible, like I said, those organizations that have an agile mindset, I didn't say delivery, I said mindset. If they have an agile mindset, they are able to better deliver. Just having an agile mindset, it was proven by the PMI. You get better results when you're agile in your mindset, even if you're predictive in your delivery. And that takes us to delivery as much as possible, seek to deliver in increments. Why should you deliver in increments? Well, if you deliver in increments, you can get feedback a lot quicker as to whether you're building the right stuff. That's one. And number two, you can get feedback after each increment, being flexible and malleable to include additional things that you might have forgotten or blown past in the beginning. That's the power of, of Agile. Number seven, measurement. The measurement performance domain. Make sure you're measuring the right thing. Make sure that the KPIs that you're measuring are sensible. This takes us back to the Agile manifesto. At regular intervals, what does a team do? They reflect and then they adjust. But we espouse the idea of empiricism, not just any old metrics but really helpful metrics that enable us adjust uh, in the right direction, right? You don't just want to adjust, you want to make sure it's in the right direction. And that's why when you look at Agile, we don't have a whole bunch of KPIs. We don't have that many KPIs, right? We may have lead time, we may have cycle time, we may have velocity, 
we may have capacity, but we don't go overboard in the metrics. There's, there's a few things we can learn in the world of predictive from the world of agile, and that is being extremely selective in whichever metrics you use. All right, finally, we have uncertainty. Uncertainty that can impact your project in order to manage this effectively, break it down into smaller chunks, and you'd be a lot better off. All right, my friends. Well, that's all for now. I want to thank you for joining me. I know there are a lot of people who were unable to join because of their workload, um, especially my friends in the United States. Uh, I'm going to just check and see if there were any additional questions or concerns. Let me check it out. I don't. I don't see anything on LinkedIn. Let me check out YouTube. I don't see anything on YouTube at this time. So for those of you joining on YouTube, um, do you have any questions? Uh, is there anything I can expand on? Oh, the PMP. So when it comes to the PMP, you saw the way I covered content. You, you saw the way I covered this content. I did not cover this content. Um, in a rote inputs, tools, techniques, outputs, methods, models, out of, no. Honestly, that is not really going to help you on your PMP exam. Just being able to absorb what I delivered is going to help you. Just understanding it, just understanding the essence of what I discussed, you know, it could help you on the exam. Thank you very much, my friend. Thank you for chatting in. Appreciate that. Uh, Lovato Carter, thank you very much. Um, and everyone else, if you've enjoyed this uh, breakdown, this presentation, go ahead and, and hit hit like, subscribe, make sure you share it. Um, the, the purpose was to add some value, talking of value to the people getting ready for the exam, because um, I realized somewhere in the middle of 2021 and now, I realized that the tools and techniques were becoming pretty obsolete for the PMP. And honestly, when my first CAPM student of this new CAPM exam passed the exam on, when did he pass it? July, late July, right? I think it was 31st of July, whenever it was. When he passed the exam, I realized that it wasn't about tools and techniques either for CAPM. Why? because we didn't do a whole lot of tool and technique stuff. Um, we focused more on the concepts. And um, even though I had advised him to read a little bit of tools and techniques, he did not read a whole lot of them. But he was able to pass the new CAPM exam, um, even without doing a whole lot of PMBOK 7 reading. That began to show me that even the CAPM has changed. So if you're taking any PMI exam, your best bet for the PMP is to understand the language and the lingo, kind of how I went through it with you. Just understand that. If there's anything that you were lost on, uh, go 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 read it up, close the gaps. Um, I know a lot of folks will be reading the seventh edition now, and honestly, they will pass the exam. Why? They'll pass the exam um, because the exam has changed pretty radically. It's no longer about process either. Even though there is a process domain, 
but it's not about mindless cramming of the processes. Um, it's really more about you understanding what the process does. That's one. Understanding the general language of project management. Could understanding some of the language of processes help on some questions? Absolutely, could. It would be foolish not to understand tools of project management. I'm not saying don't understand the tools, but I'm saying the, the mindless cramming of the tools is not very helpful. It's not really going to help you um, on your exam. Um, so I highly encourage you to spend more time understanding the nuts and the bolts, you know, understand the nuts and the bolts. So uh, thank you very much, Lovato Carter. Anyone else has any questions? Now would be a good time to ask. Okay, if there are no questions, I wish you all the very best. Um, remember on Udemy, I have my um, PMP Elite course. I'm gonna try and put that in the chat so that those of you who are training for the PMP, um, you can uh, sign up for that. I also have a course for the CAPM, um, and I'm going to endeavor to put those in the chat. So let me see if I can paste that in the chat for everyone. So that is my uh, PMP course. And the CAPM, for those of you who are keen on going for the CAPM, I'm going to put that in the chat as well. Uh, for those of you who have been trying to get this done for a while, um, now is actually a good time because it's not about formulas. It's not about earned value, um, memorization. It, it's really about understanding project management from an agnostic lens and uh, from a more humanistic standpoint. I've heard from so many of my students that while there is predictive stuff still on the exam, the, a lot of the predictive stuff is so interwoven with the agile stuff that it's like a hybrid, a very thorough hybrid mix um, in a lot of circumstances. That's what I've been hearing. All right. Okay, my friends, thank you very much. I wish you all the very best. Got any questions? Uh, put them below. Oh, Lovato says, I will be attending the PMP, taking it November. Ah, well, I wish you all the very best as you go for your exam. Okay, you got any more questions, my friends? Uh, feel free to put them in the comments below. You take care and bye for now. The sun is so bright. I'm like Casper. <laughs> but you can kind of make, make, make out my face. All right, take care. Bye for now.